Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code SOSMART at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 59. All right. Now, I want you to do something with me. I'm going to do it along with you. We're going to take in as much air as possible. Take in the biggest breath you can take. And then when you're at the top of that, try to take in just a little bit more. Okay? I'm going to do it with you. It it illustrates a point. Here we go. Oh! (laughs) Okay. And now let's go the other way with it. And if you're driving a car or operating a forklift or something, don't do this second part. But now try to blow out as much breath. Breathe out as much air as you can and just keep pushing it out. And when you think you've got every last bit, try to put out just a little bit more. Okay, I'm going to do that with you too. (sighs) Oh, Oh, man. Okay. Yeah, grab your breath and look around to see if anyone is calling for paramedics or police. And, uh, okay. Now, again, I hope you didn't do that while you were driving. And if you did, I am not legally responsible for what just happened. All right. Now, what are we talking about here? Well, you may have noticed at some point in your life that it's impossible to completely inflate or deflate your lungs. That is a level of control that you just simply can never possess. In other words, you don't have complete control over your body, especially in this regard. And it's almost as if your brain doesn't trust you to have that much control over your lungs because, you know, you forget things and maybe you shouldn't be trusted to remember to breathe. So sometimes it takes over for you in that regard. And you might actually try to blow all the air out of your body and collapse your lungs, which would be bad, or breathe in so much air that you explode your alveoli. So there are governors in place. You can't control your body 100%. You cannot control all of its functions. You aren't even aware of most of the things happening, especially down at the cellular level, right? Yet we still seem to think that when it comes to our brains, when it comes to our minds, we can exert 
total control and that we can be totally aware of what's going on inside there, even though it's still just tissue. It's an organ. It's made of the same kind of stuff your lungs are made of. And when it comes to your brain, when it comes to your mind, you don't have total control. So yeah, you, you leave your phone at restaurants. You walk into rooms and wonder why you went in there. You send emails to people that you wish you hadn't sent. And this is why you're only allowed to mess with a handful of the bazillions of processes swirling and spinning and streaming throughout your body. And one of those functions under partial control is breathing. And most of the time, you leave that to your automatic systems to handle. But when you do take control and you do silly things like holding your breath or trying to completely exhale because some guy on a podcast asked you to, you can see why there are behavioral safeguards in place to prevent you from popping your alveoli or emptying so much air for your body that the tiny bits collapse and stick together. There is a respiration inhibition module in your brain that prevents you from damaging your lungs with your free will. Now, of course, there's not literally some module in there. But the emergent properties of this system and all the pieces working together and the amalgamation of what's happening, it's, it's the results are the same. So it's useful to imagine such a thing. And if you can imagine a respiration inhibition module, a governor of sorts, then you can also imagine that there are other types of governing systems. And one of which, it seems, helps you resist excessive self-doubt. And within that module are all these little things that are called positive illusions. And in psychology, these illusions serve as a system of checks and balances running in the background at all times. And taken together, they form what's called the self-enhancement bias. And that's sort of the rosy glasses through which you see yourself at all times. So one of your positive illusions, one of the ones that does the most work, one of the ones that you depend on to feel like you can makes sense of the world is called the illusion of control. Studies into the power of the illusion of control go all the way back to the beginning of psychology, but the landmark paper was probably published in 1975. Ellen Langer, the great psychologist, showed that although you are fully aware of the difference between skill and luck, you have a hard time separating them in retrospect. Langer's studies had people play betting games. In one, two people sat across from each other, and each one chose from a shared deck. Each then wagered a small sum of money and then turned over his card. The person with the higher value card then won whatever money that he had bet, but the loser had to pay the money he had gambled. And then he had to pay that to the researchers. So what the subjects didn't know was that the person they were playing against was an actor, instructed to behave timid for some people and confident for others. The timid actor arrived late, pretended to have a twitch, and wore an ill-fitting sports coat. The confident actor was on time, initiated a conversation, wore a fitted coat, and called for the scientists to hurry up and start the study. Who won and who lost in the card game was completely random. I mean, it's just a deck of cards being shuffled. It's a game of pure chance. There's nothing interesting or crazy or weird about it. It's just a random deck of cards. Yet Langer noted that subjects tended to make larger bets when they believed the other person playing the game was nervous, and they made smaller bets when the other person seemed sure of himself. Even though they knew 
Cognitively, rationally, they knew full well they had no way of knowing what card was going to come up next because the game is pure luck. But their confidence in whether or not they were going to win changed completely depending on whether they believed the other person playing was strong or weak. Langer has done a lot of studies into this, and one of them, it's a little complicated, but it's really cool. She set up this study where she had people at the Southern New England Telephone Company on their lunch breaks come over and help in a marketing research study for a new product. Now, of course, this was a cover for what they were really doing, and the people who agreed were shown into a room housing a bizarre piece of scientific equipment. It was a large wooden box with parallel metal strips running across the top. The researchers told the subjects that it was a new game, and the object was to guess which of the three metal strips would set off a buzzer when it made contact with a metal pin. They then asked one group of subjects to take this metal pin and place it on one of the strips and then run that pin from one end of the strip to the other. Now, only one of the strips, the researchers explained, would cause the box to make a sound, and the strip was chosen at random by an apparatus inside the box. Another group was told all of that stuff, but a researcher used the pin to touch the path chosen by the subject. So the subject didn't do it. They had to let someone else do it for them, a proxy. Now, people in both groups were further divided into two subgroups each. One was allowed to mess with the box beforehand, and then the other one had to just go right right into the thing. So both groups, either the ones doing it themselves or by proxy, either got a chance to inspect the box or they had to go right into it. So again, the point of the game was to pick one of the three strips and then touch it to see if it makes a sound. So each person, right before she picked a metal strip, was asked how confident she felt that she was guessing the strip that would make the buzzer go off. And the results were people who had time to play around with the machine and who also got to hold the pin themselves were the most confident. The people who had to let the researcher do the work and had to begin immediately were the least confident even though the outcome is still completely random in all cases. And the subjects are fully aware of this randomness, but their confidence differed depending on how much direct contact and previous familiarity they had with this mysterious, impossible to truly predict box. I sense a metaphor here. The illusion of control persists, like the other positive illusions, because you need to feel as though you can push against the world and notice it move. Without that belief, your spirit dwindles quickly, as Langer showed in her later studies, in which permanent residents of nursing homes tended to live shorter lives and develop more illnesses when they were no longer allowed to choose their activities or arrange furniture to their liking. But just how much control do you really, really have over your life, over others, over relationships, over your own happiness, over the events around the world? Well, much less than you would probably like to admit. Time and again, we see in psychology that in situations in which the outcomes are clearly, undoubtedly random, people tend to latch on to any shred of evidence that could be interpreted otherwise. The illusion of control, as demonstrated in hundreds of studies, is an inability to accurately estimate your effect on the environment. Now, sure, unlike previous generations, you don't believe that you have any control over the phases of the moon or when it will rain, 
But for a great portion of your daily life and your future circumstances, you tend to grossly overestimate your influence and your ability to enhance that influence. It's not just something that scrambles the perceptions of stock traders and financial gurus who have almost no control over the markets. It isn't just something that boggles the minds of gamblers who ask people to blow on the dice or who would rather the luckier person in their family play the slot machine. It doesn't something that just affects politicians who think that they can direct the course of the entire nation just because they will it to be so. It's something that every person has to deal with because it's just how human brains make sense of reality and how human brains are set up to keep trying to do stuff. You assume you have more control than you really do. But there is a real problem here. Many healthcare professionals see this illusion of control as this source, as the main source of many of our most common and most shared problems. The sort that lead many people to eventually seek the help of a therapist. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we are going to talk to Michael Bennett, a psychiatrist who wrote a book with his daughter, Sarah Bennett, a writer for UCB, in which they say, and this is the title of the book, Fuck Feelings, in which they make the case for accepting the illusion of control as a guiding principle for a better life. More on how they did that and what the book's about in the interview after this break. You Are Not So Smart is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio on the fly, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns constantly, continuously. And it's overseen by a team of investment experts. These experts are the same ones who launched the Index Fund Revolution, and they've written some of the most important books in finance. So if you're not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages more than two billion dollars in client assets right now already and they've saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients so if you want to automate your investing you want to get your money out there and use the latest technology so that it works for you get wealth front let them watch over your investments every day and then you'll ask yourself what am i going to do with all this extra time visit wealthfront.com slash so smart to get your first ten thousand dollars managed for free and here's the disclaimer. Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks. There's a possibility of losing money, and past performance is no guarantee of future results. With all that in mind, visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. I am a huge fan of The Great Courses, and I want you to get the one that is taught by... 
This is a great course. I want you to get this. It's taught by Stephen Novella, academic neurologist at the Yale School of Medicine, host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, famed leader in that community, and a guest on this show who talked all about conspiracy theories, why we fall for them, what they're made of psychologically and neurologically. And this is his course. This course has 24 lectures. And each lecture is so cool. Like, like here's lecture one, the necessity of thinking about thinking. Lecture two, the neuroscience of belief. Lecture three, the errors of perception. Lecture four, flaws and fabrications of memory. This is a great series of courses called Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking, all about metacognition, how your brain works to process information and misinformation, what shapes your thought processes, and he gives you powerful practical tools to become a stronger critical thinker in both your personal and professional lives. And you can get this thing like all 500 of the courses offered at The Great Courses with online downloads, streaming through the app, DVDs or CDs, whatever it is that you need that makes it make sense to you and it's most convenient, they offer. And you can get for a limited time eight of their best-selling courses, including the one that I watch, which is Your Deceptive Mind, at 80% off the original price. But it's only available for a limited time and you have to hurry because it will go away. So here it is again. Okay, ready? To order Your Deceptive Mind with my special offer from The Great Courses, you must go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. Our guests in this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast are Dr. Michael Bennett and his daughter, Sarah Bennett. Sarah is a comedy writer. She's written for UCB, written for all sorts of other stuff. And he is a psychiatrist with two Harvard degrees who has 30 years of private practice experience dealing with real people and their real problems. And on their website, which you can get to at fxckfeelings.com, they write, if you want to make good decisions or get good advice about them, don't pay too much attention to your feelings. And they go on to say that most people think that's strange advice coming from a therapist because you think that you go to a therapist to get your feelings out, to share, to resolve them. But they say that's just how you see it on television. That's just how you see it with these popular doctors who have their own TV shows. That in reality, most of the things that make you feel bad are things that you can't actually control. So just sharing your feelings is not going to help much. You need to figure out what you can control, figure out what you can't, and then come up with a real game plan. So let's, let's learn more. Let's pick their brains. No, look, I've, I was just devouring your book. Um, and I've been, I have, I have, so when I was taking notes to ask you questions, I, I kept, you know, just, just basically writing, like basically I've just copied and pasted your book into a, a <laughs> file on my computer. Cause I'm like, Oh, that's a really good thing. I need to remember that. Oh, that's a really good thing. I need to remember that. So I'm, I'm slowly just, uh, writing your book again, uh, <laughs> it, barely even paraphrasing it. Cause it's so, there's so many great things in here. Um, and I guess, I guess, okay. So, if we're going to formally talk about it, so your book and and uh, feel, I, the book is "Fuck Feelings," right? That's what we're going to call it, right? That's great. Uh, okay, good. Oh, that's so, um, fuck. We're never feelings. allowed to do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you can you can totally do that here. Um, okay, so 
let's get this out of the way because I know this happens a lot, even with stuff I've done. Your book is fuck feelings. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Because it's the, of, of course, it like snaps my head back. But if someone wanted to ask you, like, what are you trying to say in a nutshell with this title? What is it you're trying to say? Well, it it turned out to be our working title because it summarized the shocking but hopefully funny interaction I had when a patient thought they were talking to a shrink who'd be, you know, quiet, respectful, and very interested. And I, uh, you know, I said, well, what's your goal with this problem? And they would say, well, of course, it's to feel better. It's to improve it. It's to solve it. And I'd be uh, uh, essentially saying, oh, fuck that. That's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, listen, let me break it to you gently. Everybody who's got a problem that's going to get solved and feel better, stand up. Not so fast. <laughs> That's called breaking it gently. You know, most people uh, tolerate that degree of harshness if they, if they really see the humor in it and see that what we're trying to get at is worthwhile, that if they can accept whatever it is, that they can really start to be much more creative about solving it or managing it, I should say, and be a lot more proud of what they're doing instead of being locked into a state of frustration where they feel their life hasn't really begun and they're getting nowhere. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. not a wholesale rejection of feelings. Uh, we have said many times that we are not wholly embracing the sort of Vulcan ideology. It's to sort of fuck feelings as the sole basis of your decision-making. Uh, fuck feelings as right, the right, way right. that you... Uh, determine results or determine whether you're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, and it's supposed to in, you know, shock you, like my father said, sort of shock you and make you laugh, but it's not just feelings are bad. Boo. Just in these very specific scenarios, feelings are not the best indicator of what to do or how you're doing. Right. I'll say, you know, your wishes uh, really suck. And they'll <laughs> say, they don't suck. And I'll say, well, how come I know they suck and I'm right? And they'll say <laughs> they don't. I said, well, the reason is I went to Harvard and you didn't. <laughs> Everybody hates Harvard. You don't even have to be in Boston to hate Harvard. So that if that doesn't get a laugh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> uh, that's great. I just came back. I just came back from Harvard this week, from this weekend. I was there doing a, a lecture with Harvard people. So that's fun. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're the whole first part of your book talks a lot about, um, change and control. And so this is like really, um, it was one of these great moments of, I was trying my best to disagree with the book as I read it. And then you slowly, you slowly won me over. And because you come out of the gate saying, that most people come go to a therapist to sort of attempt to maintain an illusion of control and to actively deny that they um, is an effort to actually deny that certain aspects of their lives are unchangeable or certain aspects of their personality or behavior is unchangeable. And you make this big case that most of life and the lives of, of the people you love or that, you're, that affect you and their personalities aren't necessarily changeable. So could you sort of unpack that for me so I could understand it a little bit better? Well, it may be that, uh, you know, around the early 1900s, people really weren't talking enough about their feelings. 
and getting people to talk more uh, did a lot of good. But uh, these days, at least by the time I see somebody, and you know, it's after they've talked to their primary care physician, it's often after they've talked to another uh, non-medical therapist, um, they've been working at it with various people. So there's a much greater chance that whatever, uh, that they're, they're not failing in therapy, that they're up against something that therapy doesn't touch. And the danger with any therapy, and I think this goes for medication and it goes in medicine too, that if you expect too much and hang on too long, it starts to do more harm than good. So building in some procedure for looking hard at how far you can go, using your experience with therapy as you've, as you've had it, um, including good talks with friends and reading good books, I think uh, uh, takes you to a point where you realize what the limits are. And that is a very important therapy in and of itself. Yeah, I think wanting that control is also, uh, from what we now understand from talking about self-help books but not really reading them, is why people buy self-help. You know, it's with this, you can be happy. If you eat a paleo diet and only work five hours a week of very intense labor, you will be the ultimate muscular success. <laughs> and there are so many factors in life we have no control over. You know, you could get struck with a sudden illness. You could... Uh, your house could burn down or you could just wake up in the morning and step in dog shit. And now you're miserable. All these little factors can add up to unhappiness. So making your own happiness, your responsibility is setting yourself up for failure and disappointment and this feeling like it is now all of your fault. So right. in talking about, you know, what you can control and what you can control, uh, we uh, reject completely this notion of a book promising you that kind of control. It's impossible. It's more managing all the things you can't control. And, you know, uh, we keep talking, and my father keeps bringing it up because I keep forgetting um, the importance of the serenity prayer in the book, uh, and you know that sort of twelve-step approach of figuring out what you can and can't control, and doing your best to manage what you can. I mean, that's one of the things that's the heart of this book, certainly. Right. I think it's kind of an executive, almost business-like uh, method that once you start to manage what you can't control, you can have a lot more creativity and a lot more pride in yourself, even when you're miserable. What, you, what really got me was like a lot of my projects, the first thing I have to do is, is get over. So it's like one of my problems would be, you know, intense procrastination. And, not, and you, when you write about it in the book, you, you talk about how uh, you see procrastination almost as um, it's almost like it's an evolutionarily adaptive trait that's not so adaptive in modern life. Like the the ability to um, the fact that it probably wasn't all that adaptive to be focused on one thing for too long. So distractibility you know, can be positive in the right environment. And you talk about how you know it's not necessarily that you're a slacker so much as that that you just have to accept that something in your head doesn't work right. That you're sort of a I think you write something to the effect of you're a biological fuck up in some way. So, um, and yeah. that's, that's what, there's no normal version of yourself. This is your normal. And instead you should develop, um, strategies that deal with the fact that this is your, the card, you, the hands you've been dealt. This is what you are as a person. This is your biological, you know, destiny. And then you should work around that. So could you sort of like help people who would hear that for the first time and go, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I just want to, I want to change who I am 
and then I can begin my life as a better version of, of, of who I am and a person more like I would like, I would wish to be, how would you respond to that sort of approach? Um, that usually at a certain age, you come to understand what your own limits are and that accepting those limits, accepting that you have one wonky gene that, you know, a million years ago was very beneficial, like we were talking about, um, it is not your responsibility. But that doesn't mean that now you can fuck up all the time. You still have to figure out what are important values to you, what you think it means to be a good person despite living with this sort of disability. And then working your hardest to figure out how to be that person still, despite having this one issue that you seem you just have to live with. So a lot of people think that by saying this is a problem and I'm never going to change, you're then saying, well, so fuck everything. I'm going to go get drunk all the time and, you know, live in a van by the beach. It's, <laughs> it, it's not that. It's saying, yes, this is a problem. Yes, it is going to be with me forever. But there are still ways that I could be the kind of person that I want to be that I think it's important to be. You don't have to mm-hmm. surrender to it. You just have to figure out strategies for living with it. So the first step would be to really look realistically at, uh, you know, are you just having this problem now or have you been having it in a lot of ways for many years? Uh, usually the answer by in the, the things I hear about are, are the latter. So it's relatively easy to see that whatever it is, it's, you know, it's not just reactive to attitude or situation or ups and downs. It's really uh, there all the time. That doesn't give us the cause, it does tell us that whatever the cause is, is probably beyond us. And then you get to the potential vicious circle that if you're, if you have uh, like many uh, very uh, talented people have very high ambitions and they're very down on themselves for not being able to fulfill their potential. Uh, Everybody expects them to do more and there can be a problem with attention or executive function that really gets in the way and their self-blame and discouragement makes the problem twice as bad. If they can look at it instead as part of their endowment, the good fairy did not give them good executive function. Then they're free to work with a coach, to ask their friends for help, to use uh, their iPhones, to use all kinds of tricks to produce the structure that they need to get done what they really need to get done and to accept some limits on it. It's not going to be as much as they want. But if it's important, there are a lot of ways to do it as long as they approach it as a chronic uh, and unstigmatized uh, problem. Mm-hmm. See, this this message so appeals to me because, uh, you know, a lot of stuff we talk about on this show is, you know, dealing with people as they are, not as they not as this glorious, um, you know, as you were saying, like Spock-like super being that we would like to aspire to become or something to that effect. Like, um, you know, we are biological, biologically based organisms that have natural limitations. And it's very odd sometimes that we assume that we are able to overcome that. You write in, in the book that, you know, there are some things that just aren't changeable. I mean, you can't just magically become taller, uh, <laughs> even right, that odds are you've already done too many drugs to become president or, or you've put too much stuff on Facebook to become president for sure. And um, you you can't just magically change your base intelligence. You can become more educated, but you can't become more intelligent necessarily. And 
this is such a great approach. Do you think that this is a, do you think that this is just something that Americans in general, or maybe people in general are shocked to hear or, or, or do you feel like there's a pushback against this or do you feel that people really uh, are warming up to, to your approach and to your message on all that? Well, I've always felt that people, it's our, in our nature to fight it because it's just not the way our feelings work. You know, we, we yearn for things. We, um, we tend to blame ourselves, particularly when things go badly. We like to see, it's a way of giving ourselves control. It's, I think it's programmed into us. One interviewer immediately thought of Rabbi Kushner's book. Uh, which was a very nice connection because um, I always thought his thinking was very similar to this. And um, uh, we overlapped a lot in Boston uh, uh, way back when. Um, it's, it's sort of human nature. I think the acceptance is sort of rational and takes a sort of spiritual effort. And that too, I think, has been going on for centuries that good philosophers, whether it's the book of Job or there's things in Hinduism, um, as one interviewer was telling us, and certainly in Buddhism, that are about the mental exercises you have to do every day in order to accept the painful things in life that you don't control. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Today, we call it CBT, but I think it's always been there potentially among um, spiritual philosophers, at least some of them in every religion. So I, yeah. I tend to see that kind of thing as therapeutic if done properly. Yeah, I, I, I love that so much of, of the book, and I've read, I've read the first half of it, it's so, um, it's, uh, it is about practical advice and how do you let, let's change, let's develop strategies and let's not get focused on the source or let's not get focused on, um, the making something, changing things that are unchangeable. Let's instead, let's actually develop strategies and priorities and goals and things and think about how you can use the, the brain you have to achieve whatever measure of success you can toward that goal and not to freak out over the, over your limitations. And it seems it's very refreshing and I really dig it. And, and you talk about how, uh, how you, uh, futile it is to try to trace your, your problems back to the source and to find the antecedents to your, to your weird behaviors and your weird, uh, tendencies. What is, what it, if you could sort of like, Un unpack that idea for me as to why would it not be worth your time to try to understand why you act the way you act and feel the way you feel? Well, as at first, it might be worth looking into it a little bit. I mean, um, especially if it will help if you have a bad habit and you could think, is this like we were talking earlier, am I distracted now uh, because of anything going on specifically in this moment or has this been true all the time? But especially if people have issues with substance abuse, you can think like, why am I drinking? Oh, of course, my parents drank. But if you ruminate on that, or if you become consumed with anger at them, or if you constantly think, what if they hadn't, all you're doing is wasting time. And that's time that could be spent forgetting about the why and now thinking about what you're going to do about it. Mm -hmm. knowing whose fault it is doesn't change the fact that you're dealing with it. I mean, people that say, uh, why can't I stop cheating on my spouse? 
you can go back to the source. Oh, my mother cheated on my father. Well, there's no then, you know, presto changeo. Now you don't cheat anymore. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it doesn't have that sort of quick effect. Looking at the source, maybe that was cathartic for a moment. But if your goal is to stop being a serial cheater, uh, it's not going to make that much of a difference for what you really want to do, which is mm-hmm. be a better spouse. In other words, Bill Clinton's temptations will never go away. He would simply have to try to manage them better. But if he got into therapy thinking he was going to have an aha moment or something would happen and he would no longer feel so restless, no such luck. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that typically what happens in that kind of therapy, though? Is, is, your, is your message also what a person like that would receive in therapy? I know that like uh, Tiger Woods, like, for example, goes into therapy for his predilections. Is that the kind of message that he would receive or is it, would it be different from what uh, you guys are talking about? Well, one hopes, I mean, the problem is that the sort of public perception of therapy uh, is like the goodwill hunting idea. You have this good cry and no, all healed. Uh, So who knows if he went in thinking, if I can just figure this out, I'll be able to keep it in my pants forever. One hopes he went to a therapist that was like, yeah, yeah, I don't care. Let's figure out what to do if you feel tempted or um, how you can, in those moments, get perspective on what your real priorities are, any number of management tactics. Mm-hmm. But it seems like people's notion of therapy is that if they can interpret their dreams enough for, uh, you know, figure out what mommy said when they were five that made them so angry, then they'll be a better person immediately. And it, right. it's just, it doesn't work that way. And not only does it not work that way, but it really undermines, that's the side effect, if you like. It really makes recovery that much more difficult. So when, when, you, when you talk about there are things that we can't change and there are things that we can't control and there are things that it doesn't even, you know, there's, you talk a lot about thinking that we deserve certain things and you, 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 you generally place all that stuff in a category of you can't have these things. What, broadly speaking, should you be doing instead of thinking along those terms? What is the, what is the more, what actually generates results, good results when someone is trying, when, when they're bashing their head against these things they can't change? Well, as, uh, as I was saying, the first step is to really look at it logically so you convince yourself, not on the authority of the doctor or anybody else, <clears throat> but on the basis of your own experience, that you've tried hard and you've reached a wall. You just try to look at it logically, uh, gather the facts together, assume that your feelings are always going to incriminate you, but if you put the facts together and they really show a pattern of doing your best with something that's intractable, that you accept what the facts say and then start to work on it. Um, Overcoming the stigma is important. Reaching out for help. All the things that you associate with 12-step programs or cognitive behavioral therapy, it's sort of, once the stigma is, is, is less, you can be more humble about the fact that you have a problem it is a weakness, and instead of feeling ashamed, take pride in the fact that you really are doing your best with it, and you're trying to look for some other people who've had the same problem, uh, who are further advanced than you, who can give you some pointers. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of things you can do that way. 
I mean, it's especially true with mental illness where people feel like depression isn't a disease, but a moral failure. And that's so Mm -hmm. unfair. I mean, no one feels like, you know, having type one diabetes is a moral failure. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's something very liberating about realizing that the things in life that hurt you the most, whether they're negative uh, impulses or, you know, mean parents, that it's not your fault, not in the goodwill hunting way, but it's not personal. You know, if you have someone who is just mean to you and they're a mean person, they're mean to everybody. You didn't do anything wrong specifically. And there are ways to manage your time with that person. If you are suffering from depression, it's not because you're weak-willed or because uh, you can't keep in perspective that you have it much better than people who are trying to immigrate out of Syria. What's wrong with you? You have an illness. And when you can accept that, it takes a certain load off your shoulders and gives you an actual plan going forward instead of just this scrambling to become better, whatever that means. Another way, again, is humor. I mean, uh, I can say things, uh, things since I should be able to change. I say, I can help. Listen, I've wanted to do this for a long time. Lobotomy will help. <laughs> it will change you. And I'm sure I can do it. It's really, it's all in the wrist. <laughs> you used to have some sort of device that had a stylus. And you'd always be like, the stylus would work perfectly. Yes. <laughs> I just need a knitting needle, a hairpin. Sure. Uh, Walter Freeman, the, uh, he used an ice pick. Or, uh, when he, he famously used an ice pick. The Nobel he, Prize for it. <laughs> right. Um, so it's something that really struck me. And I mean, I, I actually put the book down and looked around the room and I was like, is anyone else thinking this? Was um, you, you wrote, that you have every once in a while in the book, you say, hey, look, here's some things you simply can't have. And then you say, here's some things you can have and here's how you can get them. And so you, you, you often take a second and you break it down. And you, you wrote that you can't have the praise you think you deserve. You can't have the salary you think you deserve. You can't have the family you think you deserve. And then you, you, you say you can't have financial security, which is, was like really like, whoa, that's totally true. Like you can't be sure that you have financial security and you never, you're just not going, if you're the type of person who feels that way, you're never going to, to change the fact that your brain is never sure whether or not you're financially secure, no matter how much money you have. And then you can never have the knowledge that you're currently on the right track and you can never have the confidence that things are, if things are going well right now, that you're going to be able to keep them going well. And you then go into what you can do is instead set standards for yourself and priorities and then make sure that you're putting in the effort. And there's a lot of emphasis on effort instead of trying to focus on success and failure. I'm wondering what, when you're talking about standards and priorities, what are those, what are the nature of of those things in your mind? Like if I'm trying to, to develop standards for myself and priorities and sort of put myself on this different line of thinking, what would be those, what are some examples of that kind of, um, of that kind of process and those kind of elements? Well, this standards would be thinking things like uh, trying to be a mensch, a good person, a good, uh, a good friend, uh, working hard, doing your share. Um, if, if, if you're a partner, keeping your promises, being a good parent, um, all of those things. It's not, it's not that complicated. It's more that we tend to overvalue or as one uh, 
teacher of mine uh, would have said. We tend to worship things like success, control, um, uh, performing great projects, uh, doing grand things. And while they may be exciting and they may be doing very good things, we usually wind up doing harm to ourselves and others when uh, we run into that brick wall. Whereas just trying to be decent, particularly when you're frustrated and nothing is going well and your kids are not turning out well and still being a good parent. I mean, that's a problem you see often in child psychiatry. Good parents and a kid who isn't turning out well. And the important thing is that the parents don't blame themselves or get demoralized about it, that they keep doing a good job and waiting and trying. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you're absolutely right. We really think it's almost a a religious issue or an issue of spiritual priorities that uh, trying that you control. Uh, Results, no. And it's dangerous once you think you can. It's it's a powerful message. I think I think culturally, Americans are really you know resistant to this idea just because we feel like we can create the individual that we imagine in our mind. And as we go to sleep, we think tomorrow I'm going to do this, and in a, in a month I'm going to be like this. And it's it's a it, I, we don't like to think that we there there's anything outside of our um, potential. You know that our potential is limitless and infinite, and. Uh, well, that's why we draw on the Canadian side of our of our heritage to say, <laughs> "Well, look where it got you." <laughs> right. Don't and, you think and, it would have been better off with a lot less killing. <laughs> George wasn't that bad. He died after a while. Things moved on. It would have been fine. True, you wouldn't get fireworks, but in Canada, you shoot fireworks off for Queen Victoria. Big difference. <laughs> And you go so far as to say that even if you get what you want, even if you like achieve, if you set some sort of crazy goal and you actually achieve it, a lot of people aren't prepared for the fact that you know the natural consequence for in a natural brain, the the, the human mind when it reaches that wish, it's just going to wish for something else. Then, and you get this that there you, you will. It is a really odd moment when you achieve what you were trying to achieve, and then you suddenly realize, oh, I, oh, I still am going to want more things. And like there wasn't, this wasn't the final destination of this whole uh, journey that I was on. And so, it's not only is is it detrimental, you're right, to try to have this kind of aspiration towards something infinite. But if you actually happen to luck up and get this thing, it's not going to suddenly change the kind of person that you are, the kind of person that wanted something so big, right? I mean, when I would say around either of my parents, but certainly around my father, like, everything would be so much better if I could just get this story published. Everything would be so much better if I could just get this show up. And my father would say something like, well, let's imagine you get it up, but nobody comes. Or (laughs) what if you sell the story, but no one buys the book? It wasn't trying to rain on my parade. It was don't get all your focus on this so that you're setting yourself up for this feeling of disappointment when you've actually accomplished a lot. Mm. You know, it's being able to appreciate what you've done instead of putting the whole weight of the world on it. Right. Because there's always getting to that point, you get out the book, but unless the book outdoes Stephen King, then suddenly you feel like you failed. 
But it's a big deal to publish a book. Like, don't punish yourself for doing well. That's usually what happens when you push yourself with these extraordinary expectations. Mm-hmm. My father's perspective, which he repeated often, he had been, uh, he had worked very hard with his brothers in Canada to try to rescue uh, Jews who needed to emigrate from uh, from Germany and try to get some into Canada when there was a great deal of resistance to Im- to immigrants, particularly Jewish immigrants. And he uh, got to know a lot of people who had lost everything. And he repeated many times, you can't expect things to go well, uh, no matter what success you achieve. It can all get taken away at any moment. That's the nature of life. Mm-hmm. It was it really stuck in my mind. He took pride in the people he met and the people he tried to help, but he never had an expectation linked to what he accomplished. Mm-hmm. And and I think that I know personally, uh, I and I think it's probably true for a lot of people. You think that your whatever insecurities you have or whatever fears you have that you think will go away once you've achieved a certain measure of, of success. You think those things will go away once you've achieved a certain measure of success, but then you get there and you're like, Oh, that stuff's still there. That stuff still, yeah. that stuff still, well, that stuff still lot, drives me. A, a lot of what drives you to success is anxiety and worry, uh, which of course we know from Mel Brooks is one of the essential things in life. <laughs> right. um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's ingrained. It may cause a lot of, pain, but it's, it never goes away. And it also pushes us to do some very good things or, or spot some very real dangers. Right. Well, I love it. I, I, the second I saw the book and the title, I was like, you're, you're, this is deserves, I want this in my life. It's good stuff. And, um, I want to know people who are, um, who like this and are, this is resonating and they dig it how could they keep up with you? How could they find what you're up to and, and, and sort of um, put them into your lives? How could they find you on the internet? Um, well, we've had an advice website for a while. We've been working on it less because it's just turned into a publicity organ for the book recently. Um, but it's fxckfeelings.com. Um, and we're on Twitter uh, at fxckfeelings.com and Facebook at fxckfeelings spelled out.com and we have gotten assistance with all social media because I have said for years that I would only excel at something called anti-social media, but I'm a big <laughs> boundary person, so I'm not great at it. Um, but yeah, those are our, our internet right now publicity machines. But once this subsides, back to our advice-giving delivery systems. And what are you working on in the future? What, what does the future hold for you? Um, well, we're going to be working on another book. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about it, though. Okay. No need. No, I, I think so. But Well, we were just going to do a specialized book about relationships because we thought, what do people buy self-help books about? Aha! <laughs> the, idea no, that's being, good. the idea that we're working on is that uh, what people have to work on is, not, uh, is often not improving their relationships or how to find that special someone. Uh, but how to uh, uh, winnow out the negative relationships that are using up their time and dragging them down, and then being strong and persistent enough to wait till the good ones come along. Well, I love it. I wish you the most uh, success ever, and I hope everybody gets this book, and I thank you so much for being with me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Fun talking with you. Yeah.
And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. I am building a new website right now for one of my new projects. It's a new book, and I did not want it to be part of a blogging platform. I didn't want it to be based in social media. You know, a lot of people take a a popular social media service and they make that their website. I wanted to have all of those things, but I wanted them to be incorporated into something that is just mine, that I control, that is built from the ground up. And how do you do that? What is the best way to do that? Well, I think it's Squarespace because Squarespace allows you to create beautiful, amazing, powerful, professional-looking websites regardless of your skill level with no coding required. But if you have coding skills or other web-savvy skills, you can make things that are insane. And you can get other people who know how to do that stuff to help you make things that are insane. And here's what's great about Squarespace. It has all this state-of-the-art technology powering the site, security, stability, all that stuff, trusted by millions of people, well-respected, intuitive, easy-to-use tools. And for $8 a month, you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And you're going to, if you're making a website, I'm assuming you're going to have it for more than a year. You get a free domain name with their $8. It's, it's great. This is great stuff. And you can start your free trial today with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com and using my code, which is so smart, all one word, S-O-S-M-A-R-T, to get 10% off of your first purchase. And this also supports the website. So, Go to Squarespace, make a website, make your dream come true, and you get 24-7 support on top of that. You can call these people at 3 a.m. and you will talk to human beings who will help you get through your problem. It's great. It's great. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And now we return to our program. In each episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, we read some self-delusion news, we talk about some scientific study, something from the world of academia or beyond that is new and exciting and tells us more about how self-delusion really works at the scientific level. And in this episode, we're talking about this article from Fast Company. It's at fastcodesign.com, F-A-S-T-C-O-design.com. And the title of the headline is, Can a Meal's Presentation Change Your Perception? of its overall quality. Now, if you've read my stuff, you've read the books, or you've read the blog, or you've listened to a lot of episodes, you know that this is something that we've really discovered in the last 20 years or so, is that, you know, branding is so important, not only because of the way it makes you feel about the product, it actually changes your subjective experience of the food and the cigarettes and whatever else it is you put in your body. You would think that you have a purely subjective experience, like, Beyond everything else, just the taste of the wine or the taste of the cheese or whatever is what tells you whether it's good or great or superior quality. But we can we can see in all sorts of studies this isn't true. Uh, with, with wine, the labels can be switched crap wine to great wine and totally change the way people experience it. Even white wine can be colored red and people think that it's red wine. This is true for cheeses as well. They've done research into jams and all sorts of things. Even violins, there's been research in which you do you give people a Stradivarius, like a master violinist. You give them a, a Stradivarius and they play it versus a brand new, really well-made violin. And they all think the Stradivarius is superior. But if you blindfold them and put them into a condition in which they can't tell which 
is which they tend to rate the new violin as being much superior to the Stradivarius. So our subjective experience isn't just pure sensory ingestion of the thing. It's greatly tainted by expectations. And in this study, what they did, this is out of Hong Kong. And the author of the article, Meg Miller, she writes that what happened was diners were presented with two meals. So one meal is just waiting for them when they sit down and the ingredients are listed and the meal is made from scratch. And the other meal is not waiting for them when they get there. They wait a minute and then a the person comes out who is supposedly the chef, the person who prepared the, the meal. And when the chef arrives, the chef presents the meal and explains why it's so great. And they explain in the article later, they ask the people, you know, which one tasted better, which one was, was the one they preferred. And 77%, huge margin, 77% of the diners pres- preferred the meal that was presented by the chef who actually was not a chef who did not make the food totally pretending. And they consistently rated that one as being better in, 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 in every way than the one that, and this is, remember this is the one that was presented by the chef is the one that's made from the uh, store-bought ingredients. And the other meal is the one that's actually prepared from scratch. And even though that the two are so different in their quality, objectively, subjectively, people preferred the one by a great margin that was presented by the fake chef. And one of the things that I love about this kind of research, like when it came to the wine, and I've written about this and lots of people have written about it, you know, professional wine tasters are easily fooled by the switching out of the labels, even though they're supposed to have this really refined sense of taste. Now, they do have a really refined palate. It's just that even that refined palate is easily tricked by expectation. Uh, You can't refine your palate so well that you can detect differences in wine flavors if that's overridden by the expectation of switching out labels and all the narratives associated and all the other associations that your brain has concerning the quality of something based off of that initial priming example of the label or whatever. And they mention in this article that there's a YouTube video you can find. It was a prank where food experts, super foodies, uh, they fawned over, she writes in the article, McDonald's chicken nuggets dis- disguised as gourmet dishes. And it's just one of the most interesting things about the human mind is that expectation can trump experience if, if, it's not totally, totally crap. Like once it's above the level of good enough, then you can completely switch over to presentation and backstory and all these other elements like branding, like marketing, all that stuff really does change people's subjective experience of drinking a soft drink or eating a candy bar or eating a hamburger or having a fine meal, even watching a movie. Those things can be manipulated by the expectations going in so much so that in this example, a from scratch meal can be considered inferior by 77% of diners compared to something that was just bought out of a, out of a store. If a supposed chef presents the food. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. And if I cook and bake and eat that cookie, then you will receive a signed copy 
of the You Are Not So Smart book. Now, this episode's cookie comes from Tiffany Carroll. And Tiffany Carell, Tiffany Carroll, Tiffany Carell, she writes, first off, I love your podcast. I look forward to each new episode. Can't get enough. And goes on and on about it in ways that I feel embarrassed to read out loud. And she then says in the second paragraph, in other news, here's my absolute favorite cookie. My grandmother used to make them for us all the time. It isn't a super sweet or decadent cookie. It is, however, a perfect balance of flavors, in my opinion. And you will be hard-pressed to find a better cookie for tea. It's also quite easy. She always called them simply buttermilk cookies. And I'm sure a much more creative name would be in order if I wasn't suffering from sleep deprivation on account of babysitting my niece. Okay, here we go in details here (laughs) and and nephew. Um, Keep in mind, this is an old school recipe. And so some of the ingredient list approximates or acquires some judgment. Well, I just followed this exactly as it was written. And uh, I was a little worried because... It makes so much batter, so much cookie dough that, and it looks like batter also. It sort of looks like pancake batter, but it makes so much dough that at the end of this, it says just drop one tablespoon at a time onto your uh, sheet that I was just didn't trust that. So I dumped humongous globs that turned into pancakes. Then uh, I also did some tablespoon size ones and they be, they became regular cookies. So I'm not very experienced with cookie making. Usually Mandy makes the cookies and this time uh, there was some scheduling junk that was happening. We couldn't make it work out. So I had to make these. Look, I'm not the greatest at this, but I'm okay at it. And these are, these are really cool. Like she's right. They're very easy. Here's how they're made. Eggs, brown sugar, white sugar, buttermilk, butter, shortening, flour, vanilla, baking soda, and baking powder. Very simple. And, they, the batter does, I mean, I keep saying batter because that's what it looks like. It looks like pancake batter. And I'm going to say that they come out the shape of, and kind of the consistency of pancakes. Like they're weird, weird cookie. They're so light. They're light. They feel like if they feel like if I didn't put enough butter in them, that they would actually just float up into space. Like I would take them out of the oven and as they cooled, they would all end up hovering around the ceiling as they tried to get out into the atmosphere. They're very light. We're going to taste one right now before my mouth waters too much. And they do seem like the perfect cookie for dipping into tea. I think that probably I should manipulate the ingredients a little bit and cook them a little longer for them to kind of be more hard, like a sugar cookie, because these are fluffy like cake. But I'm going to eat it anyway. Here we go. Hmm. So, so great. Like, it is, you're right, it is a, this is a very polite, very unassuming, yes, how are you doing? I'm wearing an elegant evening gown to dinner. Yes, how are you doing? This is just a simple um, sweater vest. I am not trying to wear something that will <laughs> that will embarrass us or make me seem like I'm putting on airs. No, this is simply exactly what is necessary for the moment. That is this cookie, and it is also delicious. It kind of also reminds me of cornbread muffins. If you've ever had a cornbread muffin, that it's, it's in that realm. These all went to the same high school together, and they all went on different paths. One became a pancake, one became buttermilk cookies, and the other... As a cornbread muffin. 
and nobody talks to the one that ended up being a fritter. Um, not sure why. That's just the way it was back then. But these cookies are great. I love them. They are very easy. You get a lot of cookie for a little bit of effort. And if you make your dollops big enough, they are the size of decorative plates. So <laughs> I, I love this so much. Thank you so much for the cookie recipe. Tiffany, I am sending a book your way. And I love them. I will make more of these. These go into my small repertoire of cookies that I think I could repeat. And I think I could refine this a little bit. Maybe get the bottoms a little browner. But they're really, really fantastic. If you want to make pancakes <laughs> that you make in the oven, try this out. I will have all of the stuff up on the website and the Pinterest page and everything else. Thank you so much, Tiffany. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. And head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all of the previous episodes of this podcast. You can also find links to everything I talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com. And you can learn more about both of my books there. You can send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I bake your cookie... I will send you a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I am on Facebook and Twitter and Google+. Plus. It's You Are Not So Smart everywhere you look. On Twitter, though, it's at NotSmartBlog. And me personally, I am at David McCraney. Opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. The music beds are by Drew Garraway and Banjo Apocalypse. Also, in the beginning. Also, I should mention that in the opening monologue, some of that was excerpted from my book, You Are Now Less Dumb. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire 
and you will get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.